In the late 1970s, I had uh, the great privilege of spending some time uh, with a woman named Dora Kuntz. Dora was in her 80s then, and at that time she was the national president of the Theosophical Society. Dora was Austrian, and uh, she had quite an unusual upbringing. She was brought up in Indonesia, and at a very young age was taught meditation. Her parents didn't mind, when she was a child, her parents didn't mind uh, if she missed a meal now and then, if she was outside playing somewhere. But if she missed her meditation period, that wasn't okay at all with her parents. Fortunately, um, as she grew up, uh, she didn't rebel uh, against this, and she grew up to be really quite a rare being. And when I met her in the early 70s, her being in her 80s, she was still then a very dedicated practitioner. In being around Dora, one had the experience of being with someone who not only manifested deep wisdom, but who was also the embodiment of a tremendous abundance of bright, clear energy and joy. These particular qualities are actually the two things that I remember best about her. Her seemingly tireless energy and her joyful heart. She would work with us through much of the day and then into the evening. And then after supper, she would uh, give us a talk, a Dharma talk. During the day, she worked with us with a seemingly tireless generosity, giving us instruction and guiding us. During the evenings when she would speak to us, this particular mode of teaching, at times, something that she was about to say or that she had just said or some internal experience that hadn't been and wasn't about to be put into words would strike her as being very delightful. And she would laugh. And sometimes she'd laugh for quite a few minutes. And she'd slap her leg in a kind of joyful expression at those times. Dora's energy and delight were greatly inspiring in those days. And both of these exceptional qualities of hers have obviously continued to uh, stick with me over the years as inspiration and as help in leading me on the way to liberation. This evening, as we continue to explore the seven factors of enlightenment, 
will touch into the third and the fourth factors, energy and joy. And as we touched in a few weeks ago with the first factor, mindfulness, we attend carefully, wisely, mindfully to an object that's arisen in one of the four foundations or the four bases of mindfulness, the body or feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, or to mind, to the mind, objects of mind, or to dhammas, to phenomena. As our mindfulness becomes steady, we learn to discern the particular and the universal features of an object more and more clearly. And we're more and more able to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome states of mind with the ever more subtle distinctions that arise in the process of our practice. The second factor of enlightenment, investigation of states, is developing and deepening. And with this, our interest and our effort is inspired and fired up in a more ongoing way. And so with this, the third factor, the third enlightenment factor is aroused, energy. As we continue to apply energy to our practice, this work of mental purification, a spiritual joy blossoms and grows. The third factor of enlightenment, joy delight, happiness, sometimes called rapture, is born. And on it goes. As each subsequent factor arises, those that have already arisen don't disappear. They remain alongside it as an accessory, we could say. With each of the factors developing and maturing in conjunction with each other, eventually and inevitably leading to awakening, leading to enlightenment. So, energy, virya in Pali, so intimately connected to the effort involved in practicing. Basically, it's the mental effort, the energy that's present in every single moment of mental activity. The mental effort, the energy that's present in every single moment of mindful awareness and investigation. As many of us have tasted at times, there's a kind of courageous and balanced effort that we're called upon to make in our practice. 
the about-to-be Buddha. His tremendous determination and energy and the flow of his effortless effort that night under the bow tree meant that there was just enough effort being made, just enough energy being expended, not too much and not too little. And although each of us knows that energy and effort are essentially necessary for our practice, during my two and a half months of retreat this spring, it was again shown very intimately, directly, and very clearly to me that great dedication and enthusiasm, uh, a balanced exertion and a wholehearted endeavor is needed to truly engage in this process of awakening. If anyone ever told us that it would be easy, that one just kind of floats through it and reaches the other shore without expending much energy, without expending much effort, we can be sure that they weren't speaking from experience or that for some reason they were lying to us. So an important and crucial aspect of our practice is learning how to arouse the appropriate energy and effort. Learning how to make wholehearted effort in the right way. Too much effort leads to too much energy which can manifest as restlessness. Over-efforting can also sometimes result in contraction around experience and a tightening up, a tenseness in the body, a tenseness in the mind, rather than the open flow and the increase of energy feeding the blossoming of our practice. Too little effort leads to too little energy, which manifests in sleepiness or lethargy and maybe mind states of discouragement or doubt rather than zestful interest and inspiration. So it's a balancing act, we could say. It's, it's like tuning a guitar If we turn the peg too much and over-tighten the string, it breaks. If the string's too loose, there's very little sound. In both cases, the instrument's out of tune. When the instrument is tuned just right, we can play. The enlightenment factor of energy is the factor that strengthens other factors that are arising or emerging at the same time that a vigorous practice energy is present. Energy is often inspired and initiated by a sense of urgency.
The Buddha said that energy that's wisely initiated and wisely used should be regarded as the root of all insight and attainment. So clearly it's a factor of enlightenment. Classically, energy is described as manifesting in meditators as non-sinking, non-collapsing. Energy and effortless effort is a circular happening. We put forth energy. We make an effort in every posture in our practice, sitting, standing, lying down, moving. We put forth energy. We make an effort in every moment that we mindfully connect and investigate, in every moment that we explore our immediate experience. And at least some of the time, it's just the right amount just the right tuning. It's important to bring a mindful attention to the quality of the effort that's happening. Pay attention and tune up every now and then. This is important. Whenever there's just the right amount put forth, then this energy and effort creates more of itself. And we enter into this circle of sustaining energy. And what we might experience then is an effortless effort in our practice. The Buddha, with his great clarity and compassion, spoke about what he termed is the nutriment for each of the enlightenment factors, as I spoke last week in relationship to investigation of states. So what, what's the sustenance? What's the active nourishment that we can feed the heart and the mind for the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of energy? giving a careful and wise attention, reflection to the fearfulness of states, such as great anger, hatred, desire, fear, jealousy, constant dissatisfaction, states where no happiness exists. This can inspire a sense of urgency, bringing forth a deeper and stronger energy for practice. We're told to reflect on the journey of awakening to be traveled, the journey taken by all the Buddhas and the great disciples, this being the same journey that we're taking. And we're told to recognize that it can't be taken by a lazy, idle person. The Buddha encouraged us 
to reflect on his great energy, to reflect on the remarkable helpfulness of his teachings and the noble, beautiful heritage of the Dhamma that we're connected to and to reflect with the understanding that the best way to honor these things is through diligent practice. He tells us to reflect on all that has so generously been given to us through our lifetime. And in the more immediate presence, what has been offered to us so that we can sustain our practice. And he tells us that the best way to acknowledge, to give thanks, and to be a credit for this is to produce great fruit through our practice for all the givers. We're encouraged to reflect on and see the benefit of cultivating jhana, which is partly dependent on the cultivation and development of energy, as well as itself helping to nurture energy. We learn that stiffness, dullness, sleepiness of mind and of body can be removed by bringing a careful and wise attention to the perception of light or to changing postures if that's necessary or to spending time outside. The Buddha tells us that a very important He actually calls it the chief external condition for the arising of the factor of energy is to associate with energetic people and to not spend a lot of time with lazy, idle people. He tells us to review what the most important endeavors are in relation to our practice indicating that cultivating the seven factors of enlightenment is a primary endeavor if we want to awaken. And last but not least, we're told we should make a resolve to incline the mind, incline the heart towards the establishment of the enlightenment factor of energy. There's no meditation practice. There's no fruit of practice without making an effort, without using energy. During my retreat here at the Forest Refuge this past spring, I was again inspired by another venerable teacher, this time a man, also in his 80s. Saida Upandita. Uh, 
abundant dharma energy isn't necessarily age-related. Sayadaw gave a dharma talk every single night for the whole month. He offered clear and incisive interviews every morning for six days in a row each week and did extra practice interviews occasionally in the afternoons. He met with various guests and friends many afternoons and he also took a walk on the days when the weather permitted. His dharma energy was very powerfully projected to all of the yogis and was one of the primary factors for the tremendous practice energy that ensued in me during this practice period. I was at times quite surprised and amazed and deeply grateful at how much practice energy was available for me at this age of 62 considerably and consistently more than in my younger years. So there's hope in our old age if we keep practicing. The consistent and tremendous energy that Sayadaw put out throughout that month-long retreat seemed effortless. I was inspired and thought of a teaching that I'd read and have treasured and have been moved by over the years from a Chinese Taoist philosopher, Cheng Tzu. This is, this is from Cheng Tzu. The mind of a perfect woman or man is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects, but does not hold. Therefore, the perfect woman or man can act without effort. Maybe a different definition of perfection than we've been conditioned to aspire to. This is our practice, or more accurately, the possibility of our practice. The possibility, possibility of an effortless effort. The possibility of a tremendous abundance of energy, as was manifesting through Siddhartha Gautama during that now famous night under the bow tree. And so this third factor of enlightenment, effort, energy. The Buddha's instruction is that if it's present, one is to know the enlightenment factor of effort, of energy, is present in me. If it's absent, one is to know the factor of effort and energy is absent in me. Our instruction is to know how the enlightenment factor of energy comes to arise and how the development of it 
comes about. The fourth factor of enlightenment is joy, delight, piti in Pali. This factor is often called the happiness factor. It's not a feeling as in pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. It's a mental formation. It's a, a mental response. One aspect of joy is a kind of zest and enthusiasm. The mental state of joyful interest and delight. Joy, or rapture as it's sometimes called, is bright, it's buoyant. There may be the experience of a certain kind of physical and mental transformation and balance when this factor is present in us. We may in these moments feel refreshed, unbound, and maybe even healed. I sometimes think of it and experience it as a lightness of being. Experientially, this enlightenment factor can circulate through our body and mind like a river like waves. There may be sensations and mental states of softness or great gentleness, smoothness that become known. We may experience light or tingles or maybe maybe a comfortable coolness or a feeling of floating or maybe even a feeling of flying. Or we may just simply feel fantastically comfortable and have no desire to get up from our cushion. Instead, there's great interest supported by mindfulness, investigation, and energy to continue to sit without moving. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks of his joy as being like spring, So warm it makes the flowers bloom. With this factor in place, we feel energetically lightened, agile. We feel well in the midst of whatever phenomena is presenting itself. When the enlightenment factor of joy is established, we truly begin to feel a sense of well-being in the midst of any given experience. There's a sense of being imbued with a refreshing lightness of being. Our practice, our meditation practice, is refreshed and renewed and renewing energy and inspiration arises.
Again, as I've shared uh, over these weeks, the Buddha offers us specific nutriment for the arising, development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of joy. He tells us to give a careful and wise attention to the following. Reflecting on the qualities of the Buddha and on the great benefits of the Dharma. And to carefully and wisely reflect on the various facets of the and the precious importance of the Sangha. Joy arises with a reflection on the benefits and beauty of Sila. I had a very visceral experience of this during the spring retreat with Sayada Upandita here. Every time I would go into the house where Sayada was living and where he did interviews, I would be struck by the purity and the beauty of the energy of Sila that pervaded that space. And every time this happened, my heart would fill up and gently kind of leap with joy. The Buddha tells us to reflect on the benefits of generosity in all of its facets, within the giving and within the receiving, that this can nurture joy, delight, happiness. He tells us to reflect on peace and strongly encourages us to cultivate relationships with gentle and refined people and avoid avoid spending much time with rude, rough people. He also says spending some time reflecting on the devas can bring joy and delight. We're told to listen to and review inspiring and encouraging Dhamma talks with a very careful and wise attention. That this is a fine nutriment for the arising development, fulfillment, and perfection of the enlightenment factor of joy. And we're encouraged to make a resolve to incline the mind, the heart, towards the establishment of the enlightenment factor of joy. Joy makes the mind, the heart, bright, light, pliant, open. It's rooted in our practice along the way of this journey to awakening. We have countless opportunities to know joy directly through our practice. Countless opportunities to take delight in relationship to our own practice. The joy of a loving, compassionate heart. The joy of metta and karuna. The joy of living with 
a growing and deepening ethical relationship to others, to life in general, and in relationship to our own body and mind, the joy of living harmlessly, the joy of non-guilt, non-worry, non-deceit, the joy of a collected, focused mind, the joy of calm and tranquility, the joy of non-distraction, non-dispersion, delight, joy in non-proliferation of thought, the joy of seeing things clearly, seeing them clearly, truly, just as they are, which brings the great joy of understanding, the joy of wisdom, the joy of non-delusion, non-confusion, the joy of peace. The small smile on the face of the Buddha can be a pointer, a reminder, and an inspiration for us of the underlying ground of joy, the inherent joy in the midst of and along with the compassion and wisdom of the awakened mind, the awakened heart. As a factor of enlightenment, we know when joy is present in us and when it's absent. We know how it comes to arise and we know how the development of it comes about. The seven factors of enlightenment are grouped into two types. The first grouping are called the activating factors, while the second grouping are the restraining factors. We've now collected with or connected with and explored all of the activating factors. Discrimination of states, energy, and joy. And they're called activating because when the mind is dull, when it's sluggish, these are the factors that are to be cultivated. As when one feeds a small fire with dry sticks and grass to make it blaze up. The restraining factors are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, which we'll begin to explore next week. The enlightenment factor of mindfulness doesn't belong in either of these categories, as it's completely necessary and useful everywhere. 
and in relationship to the activating and restraining qualities of the other factors, mindfulness is what particularly ensures that they're kept in balance. In the overall light of practice, the seven factors of enlightenment are developed and established as the antithesis to all forms of ill will, sensual lust, sloth and torpor, restlessness, regret and shame, and doubt. These states of mind and body being our primary obstacles to progress in developing concentration and insight. When we buy when we blindly take up and identify with the so-called hindrances, they become hindrances. They weaken or can erase understanding and can block or close the heart, the mind. We can lose the Dharma. On the other hand, the seven factors of enlightenment, each in their own way, and as they work together, are our greatest assets, our greatest assets in leading us towards understanding and liberation. The Buddha compared the hindrances to corruptions of gold, to trees in the forest that are filled with parasites, and to impurities in water that obscure the reflection of one's face. It's as though they make us blind. And we even have expressions in English such as blinded by anger or blinded by desire. The factors of enlightenment, on the other hand, are makers of vision makers of wisdom and great aids along the path of awakening. I'd like to end uh, the talk this evening with a brief story about another teacher who is the embodiment of great abundance of energy and joy. A few years ago, I attended a week-long retreat in northern Colorado with a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. For the last evening's Dharma talk, we had a special guest teacher who was one of the teachers of the Rinpoche who was teaching the retreat. Our guest was Adi Rinpoche, a man again who was in in his late 70s or early 80s. And this was his first trip to the United States. Before he arrived at the retreat center, we were given some background information about Adi Rinpoche, in that he's a very fine artist. 
and that he had been in a Chinese prison for 20 years, 15 years of which he and two other lamas were practicing in retreat. This 15-year prison retreat came about because of the kindness of one of the Chinese doctors at the prison who created the conditions to make this possible for the three men. We were told that um, Adi Rinpoche is one of the few remaining antique lamas left. And so our honored guest came into the meditation hall with his somewhat stiff and bent body. He was given help in climbing up to his seat and he proceeded to give a very long, clear, and very traditional step-by-step Dharma talk from the Tibetan perspective. Not a particularly scintillating talk, nor was there even a thread of humor in it, but in its own way, it it was interesting enough. There was, though, a particularly scintillating aspect of that evening, and it was Adi Rinpoche himself. As he spoke, there was an energy, a lightness, a suppleness, and an incredible delight in his demeanor that came through. At times it seemed that he was almost bouncing lightly in his seat, maybe the closest thing to levitation that I've ever seen. And just to check myself uh, that the possibility of, I was projecting something on Adi Rinpoche, after the talk, I asked two friends of mine who were also attending the retreat if they also noticed these qualities. And they confirmed that they definitely had. After the retreat finished, there was a fundraising auction where calligraphy and paintings done by Adi Rinpoche were auctioned off. The woman who had requested uh, him to do a few paintings and some calligraphy for the auction told us that she'd stayed with him all the time that he'd worked. She said that the whole while that he was painting, he was visibly filled with a a gently bubbling energy, laughing lightly the whole time that he was working. Again, another great inspiration for me and for others. This man who bears the fruit of managing to do deep practice for the majority of the 20 years that he spent in prison which we can be certain wasn't a comfortable or easy or supportive situation to practice in. Nothing like the forest refuge. In this light, I'd like to uh, close the talk with a piece from the Dhammapada. This is the piece called Joy. Live happily, free from hostility, 
even among those who hate. Live joyfully, free from misery and affliction, even among those who are afflicted. Live happily, free from the trouble of busyness, even among those who are busy. Live joyfully, like those who have nothing, feeding on rapture, like the shining ones. Winning gives birth to hostility. Losing, one lies down in pain. The calmed lie down in peace, having set winning and losing aside. There's no fire like lust, no evil like hatred, no pain like disharmony, no happiness like the happiness of peace. Hunger, the primary sickness, conditioned states, the primary pain, Knowing this truth, just as it is, freedom, the primary joy. Health, great good fortune. Contentment, great wealth. Trust, great kinship. Freedom, the greatest happiness. Look within. Taste the nourishment of seclusion, of stillness and calm. Freed from fear and attachment, refreshed with the sweet joy of the way. How joyful to see the awakened. Always happiness in the company of the wise. Endless grief for those who commune with a fool as traveling in company with an enemy. Joyful is communion with the awakened as with a gathering of kin. Follow the awakened, the shining ones, the discerning, the learned, dutiful, loving, integral, and wise. They know how to work and forbear. Follow them as the moon follows the path of the stars. So let's sit together for a few moments.
Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.